Now, continuing on, please. In Revelation chapter 13, there's still a lesson there I feel impressed and I think I must bring out from that vision of the second beast. Before we go on to chapter 14 and we we see something of that sea of glass, don't we, and the song of the redeemed and, and the sound of the angels' voices and so it goes on. Very beautiful, very, very beautiful pictures. But we're looking at chapter 13 and there are two key verses to help us understand the pictures representing pictures of the dragon, indeed of Satan himself, of his emissaries, of his cohorts and of the way he works. And the first verse, remember, was in 1 Peter 5, when it said, verse 11, no, verse 7, it said, be sober. And we need to be sober, need to be serious and thoughtful and wise. And be vigilant, be watchful, be on the lookout. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about, seeking whom he may devour, now, that's clearly a picture of the first beast, the devil and his ferocity and his destructive intentions. I think it's lovely, the next verse. He says, whom resist? No, don't run. <laughs> don't think you'll be overwhelmed. That's never in God's mind. Whom resist? Steadfast in faith. Now, that's beast number one in Revelation 13. And the second one that we've been considering last week, it says this about Satan. No marvel. He said, don't be surprised. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So he said, don't be surprised. Satan works a different way. He's not always obvious. He makes himself look what he is not. And he gets his ministers to appear as though they're ministers of righteousness. They're doing something that's so good and so right. Satan will use the force of deceit, the power of deceit. And that, of course, is the second beast because he looked like a lamb, but he wasn't that at all. What you saw, what it appeared, was not what you got. He had the voice of the dragon. And everything about Satan's workings were characterized by that number six. We saw that number seven was God's number. Number six, which, which look, it looks like it. It's, it's nearly there. I mean, it contains all six components of seven, you see. Deceit always has elements of truth in it. It's always very near to reality. It's always presented in such a way that you could think it was the real thing, and then if you're deceived, you would act on it. Now, that's the point of chapter seven, the weapon that Satan uses, the weapon of deceit. Now, this is important to understand further because we must understand this because this has been the... Modus operandi, this has been the devil's activity, really, as an angel of light in deception and his servants, ministers of righteousness, particularly in the Western world, not only in history, but also today. And even so, also in the church, particularly in the West. Now let's start at the beginning with this because it'll immediately hit you the the way he works and the power of deception and the force, the craftiness of it. After all, it was by one master stroke of deceit, one master stroke of deceit, that he gained control of the entire human race. You've ever thought of it like that? He brought all humanity under his rule and under his power by one master stroke of deception. 
and he put his stamp upon all of mankind. You talk about the mark of the beast, did you know that you're actually born that way if you think about it? Every little child's born, what, he's born a child of wrath. Satan's already put his mark on the fallen nature which gets handed down from Adam. Now that's what he succeeded by, just one act of deceit. Now you don't have any ideas, do you, that he's going to give up in the light of the fact that he made such a victory with it. No, it's his, it's his modus operandi, it's how he started, it's how he continues, and it'll be how he ends, because he's cast finally into the lake of fire, where he'll deceive no more, it says. The old deceiver will deceive no more. In other words, he started at the beginning, he carries it on right now, and he'll go be just the same unchanged until the end, until God finally judges him. I want to show you how he deceived, because the doctrine of the fall in Genesis 3, the fall of man, is one of the most crucial doctrines in Scripture, one of the poorest understood, I might add, and one of the most ignored in today's world, because it's not a very nice subject to talk about us all being sinners, especially in today's society of self-worth. We've all been deceived into thinking that it's a lesser important, uh, lesser important truth, the truth of the fall. But just, just step back a minute and think. Everything's going swimmingly well. I mean, man was never so blessed. Adam and Eve were never so happy. God was never more glorified. And then one day, the serpent who was more cunning than any beast of the field, this is Genesis 3 and 1, he says to the woman, you know, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, you know, an affable conversation, a seemingly innocent remark. Has God really said that you can have every tree of the garden? You can hear the little overtone of, my, isn't that incredible? You know, isn't God good to allow you to eat every tree of the garden? But see, <laughs> he wasn't meaning to be affable or even to express some kind of glory for God and his generosity. No, it's not, not, in the, not on the page at all. It's not on his program. And the woman corrects him and says, yes, but there is one tree that we can't eat of, and that tree, if we eat of it, we'll surely die. And, um, you can see the devil just looking, and, and even this serious sort of simple conversation, he says, oh, you won't surely die. What's he saying? You, is he, you know, how do you interpret you shall not surely die? You say, well, he's casting doubt on what God said. Yeah, but he's doing it very, very cleverly. I mean, this God that's giving you all this blessing who has only ever shown you the infinite grace of his mercy and of his, of his person, and has only ever blessed you, you mean he actually said you'll die? I mean, you see what's coming? You see? And then he says, we well, won't surely die. I mean, there might be some, well, who knows what, but death, I mean. Uh, and you really mean that he said what you said? It doesn't quite tie up, and... And then as he moves along down the, his program, he gets to the point where he actually tells the lie. Now, this is the point I want to get to. The ultimate lie of deception, which has been deceiving mankind ever since the fall and is very operative in our world today. He says, God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open. You shall be as God. That's the meaning of it. And you will know good and evil. What he's saying is, right now... God says he knows what's good for you. Right now, God says he knows what's evil for you. He says he has that knowledge and he is in control of that knowledge, therefore gives you some sort of restraints. But, you know, I'll tell you something. If you just broke that boundary and if you just actually took that tree, you will have the power of knowing what is good for you and what is evil for you. 
He's not just saying you'll lose your innocence. That's, that's not on his program, although that is absolutely true. He's saying that you will be as God and in that position that God is in where he has taken the place of knowing what is good for you and knowing what is evil for you and withholding from you that ability and discernment to make that judgment. He's got it. You haven't got it. But if you will just take that tree, which clearly is not what it looks to be as, a, as it's been presented to you, you will automatically take to yourself the ability to know what is good and evil. Then you will move one rung up the ladder where God is because you'll have everything that he's got. After all, you've already been made in his image and after his own likeness. This is the only bit that God has reserved for himself. You get a hold of it and you won't need him anymore. Get the point. You won't need God anymore to tell you what's good for you or to tell you what is evil for you. You'll know it in yourself. You will then, and not God, be in control and you can make your own decisions without him. Now this is the temptation. This is the craftiness of what he's presenting. And Eve, you know, it says there that, that she actually looks at the tree. All right? And she looks at it and she's starting to assess that tree. I mean, we've been told, she said, that it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it's the tree that will bring us death. But I'm looking at this tree and it looks so nice to eat, really. It does look nice to eat. See, she's using her own judgment. And she says it's pleasant to the eye and it's good to the taste. It's, it's a sort of brain food, you know. It'll make one wise. And you can think... Well, you can see that she's thinking, well, that, that, that's, there's nothing really very bad in that tree, nothing very evil about it. See how she's already taking the, the, to herself the ability to discern and make the difference between good and evil? She's saying there's only things that are good about it. And then she made that decision that she could discern what was good from what was evil, and she took the fruit and she ate of it, she acted on the lie that had been sown into her mind by the conversation and cunning of Satan, and she was deceived. And in that deception, she brought about the events that led to the entire enslavement of man to Satan and to his power. Scripture says that. The serpent deceived Eve by his craft. And it says also the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now let's go a bit further with this because there's a bit more to it. It doesn't say that Adam was deceived because it looks very much as though he actually wasn't. So you say, well, Adam was a much smarter creature than Eve and, you know, the ultimate misogynistic remark. Now wait a minute, it's worse than that. Adam, it doesn't say he was deceived. In other words, he had some discernment as to what was going on he also ate. He took from her and ate, knowing what he was doing. Now that's flagrant rebellion. You know? One is deception, and that's how Satan worked. He got the woman and threw that to the man, and the man knew what he was doing. Therefore, the scripture says, by one man sin entered into the world, not by one woman. Right? As in Adam all die. So in Christ are all made alive. Not as in Eve all have died. And he set the train of events into being whereby he could put his stamp on the whole of mankind and it was all through deception. He's a master worker when it comes to deception. He's cunning above all other creatures. 
And he is responsible through deception for enslaving, for entrapping, for binding men and women as slaves of himself, as slaves to sin, which is exactly what you had in Revelation 13 when you were reading about the beasts. You see, that's what they wanted. They wanted total control, everything in their hand, and no dissenting voice in the people of God in the world, let alone the Christ of God sitting on the throne of God, who is ruling all things with divine power and ultimately bringing judgment. That's what this is all about. Now, not only was that lie, the great lie, you shall be as gods, you will be able to discern good and evil, you will be able to make right judgments and decisions about what's good for yourself and bad for yourself. Not only did that one lie bring about the fall of the whole of mankind, but that same one lie which Eve was deceived by, which Adam allowed to happen, that same lie is the lie which governs the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. The whole philosophy of our today's society is built on the lie, not a lie, the lie. Let me, under, let me um, unfold it a bit for you, unpack it a bit for you. Because it's very important to understand that, to understand the world in which we live. I mean, it is a terrible, terrible state that we're living in today. Every vile, corrupt morality is paraded as something that's good for you. You know, it's a society where good is called evil, it's true, and evil is called good, and truth is sold in the marketplace, and God is not wanted, and the Christian is rejected and totally persecuted, wanting the, they want them to be exterminated. And then in Romans 1, where you have a description of the Roman world, which is a pagan society, which is the description of our present world, which is now a pagan society, what you get there is the exaltation of that unnatural, that debauched physical relationships. And today, there's such a prevalence of it. I mean, we've almost got to make special consideration, and you've almost got to admire people that practice that filthy homosexual behaviour. You have to, I mean, they're so brave, they've come out into the open, they're, they're now set free, and they're living a liberated life, and they're to be envied, and given place to, and bowed down to. I mean, the thing's out of all decency and all proportion. You say, well, how could you get to this? And if you read down these scriptures, it, it leaves you spinning in your mind because it says quite clearly that the society is full of all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate or conflict or argument, deceit, evil speaking, whispering, backbiting, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. I mean, you just wonder what they're going to come up to ne with next. That Well, now we're going to, we just mentioned the euthanasia thing. That's an inventor of an evil thing. Wasn't there before. Something new, invention. Going against the, the orderings of God. Disobedient to parents. Now, everybody with a family has to take that into account, that that's put in line with all the other things of society that are so hateful to God. Disobedient to parents. You're left having to teach your children clearly these things without understanding. 
covenant breakers. I mean, they'll, they'll sign any contract and break it. They'll stand before God with the oath of marriage and the contract of marriage and just break it. It doesn't matter. Without natural affection. That's without family affection. Where is the cohesiveness in the nuclear family? Implacable. You know, you, you, they're unforgiving. They don't turn back and change. They're unmerciful. And even though they know the judgment of God against those which commit such things, they're worthy of death, but they don't only practice them. They really like other people that do. The world loves its own. And you say, this is, this is beyond a joke sort of thing. You say, well, how, how did it get to this? And it says there the first reason in verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. In other words, they took God deliberately out of their framework of reference. They took God and they took him out completely out of their framework of thinking. And once you do that, once you've got a mind devoid of God, destitute of God, what you've got is a reprobate mind, a mind that's twisted and debauched and can only consider evil because you have excluded God and you have no point of reference whatsoever. Now that's the first reason why the society's like that. But if you bore down a bit deeper, and this is the point I wanted you to get to, because you actually end up back in Genesis 3. If you bore down even deeper, the apostle, in explaining it in Romans 1, has already made it clear. I mean, you say, why would they deliberately exclude God? I mean, he's the answer to every question. He's the answer to all their scientific dilemmas. He has their answer to all their social dilemmas. He has the answer to all that the world needs. He has the answer to their sin. He has Christ. He has the lot. Why? Now, Romans 1 and 25 says this quite clearly. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. All right? They're just following exactly Genesis chapter 3, where they say, I will refuse God's directions. We are capable of determining right from wrong, of what's good for us, and of what is evil for us. We are able to do this ourselves because we now have gone to the, ele ele to the elevators of ourselves to the place of God. We don't need him. So we don't want him in our knowledge, in our framework of thinking. The truth of God, the truth from God, we have exchanged that for the lie that we ourselves can find those truths and those that knowledge and standard within ourselves. Now that's really what's going on. Now that is why the world is where it is. And we need to have an intelligent understanding and a sorrow in our heart and a compassion for the sinner because they have been deceived into believing the lie. And the Satan, the devil, the beast, the one with two horns like a lamb, right? The one that looks what he is not, who is so capable of misrepresentation of an untruth and mistruth. That one has brought the lie down into the present day and generation to a society we now have well, actually, man believes that he really is God. He really is God. He is able. He knows good and evil. I mean, 
Not much we can't do. We can control the weather, the climate. We can conquer COVID. We can stop warfare. We can end all inequality. We can dispel all poverty and all discrimination and all justice. And you go, you know, <laughs> what can't men do? We teach our children, you know, when you grow up, you can do anything. It's a lie, you know. And apparently we can do all this in our society all without God. I mean, all by ourselves. And all without prayer. See, I think that one of the things that's really been sad about our present day society is, and the world society, in all this COVID crisis, so-called, can you tell me anybody that stood up in public and said, it's time we had a day of prayer? Of course you don't have a day of prayer when we can do it ourselves. We know, you know, if you wear a mask inside, outside, upside, downside, I don't know which way you've got to wear it or when you've got to wear it or where you've got to wear it. I mean, everybody's got their own idea about how to fix the problem, but where's the voice that lifts up and says, let's turn to God? Now, we don't have God in our knowledge. Why? Because we believe the lie. He's totally unnecessary if he exists. We're here and we exist, and we know what's good and evil, and we can judge and discern within ourselves without him. Now, that's where we're at today. Now, we need to follow this through and understand this second beast and how he works. Now, he's still working because things, yes, they're bad. Well, we think they're really bad because we've had it so good. And by comparison, yes, it's bad. But, you know, maybe there's been worse days in the world. I don't know. This is a different day because of the universality of it and the whole high-tech thing and communication. But... It says in Timothy, and we need to understand this, that things are going to get worse. In chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Evil men and seducers, people who are able to lead others astray, they're going to wax worse and worse. How? How? Deceiving, get it? And being deceived. So that will be the primary activity of Satan, one of his primary modus operandi. Sure, there'll be brutality, there'll be persecution, there'll be destruction and direct attack on the people of God, but be careful because his ministers are going to grow and they're going to be deceiving and being deceived. The whole chapter of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a description of the last days. When are the last days? That's the time period between when the Lord Jesus left here to the time when he will come back to here. And throughout that time, it says there's going to be very perilous or difficult seasons. Now, you can see that in history. There's been seasons of good, seasons of blessing, seasons of peacefulness, seasons of prosperity in the gospel, seasons of wonderful revival, but there's going to be perilous seasons. Understand that. Understand the day in which we live and the God that we have and the book that he's given to us and the power that is ours and the Christ who is on the throne. We'll get to the end of all this finally in a day, you know, another couple of sessions and we'll see that the idea of defeat is never in the mind of God for his people, even here on earth. Never. We're always more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's the point of victory that you get to when you really understand the scriptures. What it says is perilous times. They're going to be lovers of their own self. Well, we don't need to. Oh, you don't go far to find that out. And they're covetous. They're boasters. They're proud. They're blasphemers. They're disobedient to parents. They're unthankful. They're unholy. They have no family affection. They're truce breakers. You know, there's never any peace when they're around. They're irreconcilable. They're false accusers. They're out of, they lack self-control, they're fierce, 
They're despisers of those that are good. You see how the first beast is coming through those verses? Fears, uh, despisers of those that are good. And if that's not enough, they're traitor, traitors, they're reckless, they're haughty, they're high-minded, they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So what do we do? You know, see, let's be fair. It's very important to legislate for the thousands to go to the footy. I mean, we all love pleasure, but don't worry about legislating the thousands that can go to church. You know, that's, that's a lesser thing. See, priorities are all twisted and bent. They've believed the lie. They've got a, it's worse than that. The next verse says they've got a form of godliness and they deny the power thereof. That means we're dealing here also not just with those in high places, not just those who are obviously ungodly. We're dealing here with those who go to church. Now that's why we need to understand it better. Satan has his ministers appearing as ministers of righteousness under the power of the angel of light within the circle of the Christian faith. And indeed, that is important because what you will always find is that Satan works within the church to create division, to create dissatisfaction, to create heresy, to create wrong doctrine because he wants to deceive people into thinking that this is a right way when in actual fact it's from himself and it's the end of the end is actually damnation. A total misrepresentation of the things of God, a false gospel, a message that's supposed to bring liberty and liberation and freedom and joy and the knowledge of God when it does no such thing. Back in the turn of the 18-1900s, all the major churches were teaching, you know, it's by good works, it's by keeping the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it's by loving your neighbour as yourself and being a respectable person and you can have every hope of heaven afterwards. A totally false gospel, you see. He got his ministers in there as ministers of righteousness. And what we have now really today is a gospel where there is no repentance. Just be a follower of Jesus, you know. Just to... The mention of sin is never there up front. And what we've got is a gospel really that's getting to the point where there's no repentance where you have sin and there are no consequences, and then there's a God and he's not a God of judgment. Now we'll read through Revelation and your hair will stand on end when you see the judgment of the wrath of God. It's absolutely dreadful and it's absolutely true. Now you say, you read that and you think to yourself, and then we get down to verse 13, and we've read enough that's bad, but it's going to get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now get this out of this section of Scripture. It's a great comfort. You say, well, how can you ever survive? You know, how, how am I, just a simple, ordinary Christian person who just reads my Bible, you know, how am I not going to get deceived? How am I just not going to get led astray? And here I am, I just go to the church and I, I come and I go and I do my best and I pray and I read my Bible and I just seek to please the Lord. That's all you need to do. That is your preservation. And that's exactly what he says here. He just says, number one, you continue in the things that you have learned, knowing of whom you have learned them. So that's number one is just be careful who you listen to. But he says, from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is given in Christ Jesus. Take care who you listen to, yes. But just continue on where you started. 
Whereas a little child, as it were, you learn the scriptures. You say, well, I didn't learn them when I was a little child, but you became a little child when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And you took the scriptures and you read them and you loved them. And you love the Christ of the scriptures. You love the God of the word. Because the fact, simple fact is this, all you need to be preserved from the lie of Satan, from the ongoing deception of his ministers who pretend to be ministers of righteousness, from the ferocity of a world that would have you and I under such persecution that we would almost want to renounce our faith, the thing that will keep you is this little book. Right? This little book. Go back to where you began. The mighty angel that came down in that other picture in chapter 10, he came down and he claimed authority over earth and over sea and over land. And he empowered the apostle John to go on and to witness for him. And he gave us a picture of the witnesses slain on the streets as they voiced out the testimony of God. And what was the point of the picture? This little, this mighty angel had in his hand not a mighty sword, but just a little book. And I might say, if I could, a little black book. You understand what I mean? Because all that was necessary for the final triumph was the word of God. How did the Lord Jesus stand in the temptation? How did he do it? He just quoted the word of God. And he quoted the word of God. And he quoted the word of God. Everything we need is found in this book. And I think it's just lovely that you've got in the scripture, which is God-breathed. So in the scripture you have the voice of God, and it's profitable for four things, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. And that is what you need and all you need. Let me just take you to another point on this. I want you to notice it began with doctrine. Now, people, it's incredible the number of Christians say, oh, yeah, oh, that's doctrine. You know, I'm not interested in doctrine. I just want to know how to live. You know, I want to... Somebody said to me recently, um, well, the church you go to, they're, they're too interested in doctrine. What you need to have is some practical solutions. And I thought, oh, dear, this, this, this poor gem. <laughs> you see, doctrine is the framework in which we work. It's the framework in which we think. Doctrine is the teachings of God about himself, about man, about sin, about the world. And when we receive from him the correct structure, that doctrine, for instance, when we wake up to the fact that the devil is a roaring lion just as much as he's a, a deceitful lamb, when we wake up to the fact that the world is actually waxing worse and worse and not getting better and better, when we wake up to the fact that it's going to ultimately come under judgment and we're not going to get it ready so pure that the Lord can finally come and claim his bride and all those foolish doctrines, you see. We get those the wrong doctrines, but when we take the doctrine from the scripture and we understand these things, then we think correctly, then we behave correctly. Our behavior comes out of our understanding of what God has revealed about himself. I don't do just think, don't just do things in the Christian life because, wow, they make me feel good and I like it. Or, wow, they make me feel important and wanted. You get the idea? No. When the epistles were written, the apostles all wrote, the first section of it is what? Doctrine. 
The section, second section is what? Practice. Why? Because now you apply that doctrine to your life. It shows you how to practice your faith. Ephesians 1 to 3. Doctrine like, you know, if we took up Ephesians 1 to 3 properly, well, we'd certainly be going for two or three years without even trying. And somebody who could really do it would go a lot further. But then you get to chapter 4 and straight away into the practice that comes out of the doctrine that you've learned. You've learned about Christ in the church, well, you learn now about marriage and husbands and wife. You see, you put it into practice. Romans, the doctrine of the gospel, right through for, what is it, 11 solid chapters of sheer magnificence. And then he says, now you present your body as a living sacrifice. Practice, see. Doctrine comes out of practice. So I, I have to emphasize that, very much so. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof, which is actually the understanding of the conviction, the conviction within, the evidence of what's right, it convicts you, right? That's the idea of reproof there. Correction is then that you change your behavior in order to be in line with it, and for instruction in righteousness. In other words, you know what the right way to behave is. Everything we need found in the word of God to stand in an evil day when things are waxing worse and worse. The relevance, this is what we've learned, the relevance of the lie, the power of deception, the relevance of deception in the fall of man and in the ongoing state of our sinful society. You could go on and on about this. I'll leave you with another one in Galatians 6 and 7. You know what it says there? Be not deceived. All right? Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You know, that's a law of life built into the structure of society and creation by the hand of God himself. Well, what's he actually saying there? He said, no, don't you be deceived. There are consequences. What do we live in today? A society that is desperately trying to do away with consequences. The constant diminution of punishment in today's world. They don't, we don't want consequences. Oh, I know I murdered my father, but, you know, I had a terrible upbringing. And besides that, you know, my mother had mental health issues, you know, and uh, I was out of work, I was depressed, I was drunk, and I was on drugs, and... So, you know, you've got to, and oh, yeah, well, now there's mitigating circumstances. The consequences now are quite different because we understand. We might understand sin, but it's sin, you see. Whatsoever a man reaps, that shall he also sow, God says. David numbered the people, right? He repented of numbering the people, but he still fell into the hands of the Lord and the punish, divine punishment has consequences. Now, I wouldn't think any of us that have been Christians very long or for any length of time, really, certainly not for a long time, haven't come to that conclusion that you reap what you sowed. You'll do it in your own personal life, you'll do it in your business life, you'll do it in your family life. And so often we spend our time crying over hard things that come to us, but in actual fact they're the consequences of our own behaviour. And I'll be quite frank with you, you often find 25 and 30 years later it comes back to bite you. It does. You sowed it, you will reap it. And the best thing is you accept that as a fact of life under the hand of God. Now this whole idea is coming more and more into the bringing up of our children, you know. You do everything you can to protect your child from the consequences of their behaviour, from any kind of negative feedback. 
I mean, you know, we mustn't put red marks on papers and we mustn't say too much that's negative because it will probably damage their ego. And so we must always affirm. Should we affirm children? Of course we should. Should we encourage them? Of course we should. But I tell you what, the best thing you can tell your child, the best thing is that they're sinners and they need a saviour. That has to be the most destructive thing to a, person's morale, to a person's morale, they say. No, it's a wonderful thing. Teach them what they really are and the awfulness of sin and sinful self. And it's the opposite to self-esteem. And there are consequences to all behaviour. So we could go on. The other one I found that was so incredible was, you know, the uh, Olivet Discourse. I mean, the Olivet Discourse is what? It's really the seed plot of all prophetic teaching. That's what the Olivet Discourse is. And I might add, and I will say this, when you listen to people give meetings on prophecy, you'll find very few, if any, will start at Matthew 24. Very few. Because it defies all pre-established structures. The truth is, if you want to know a doctrine in the Bible, always go to where it's taught by the Lord Jesus Christ first. First, that's a, that's a rule of understanding your Bible. You want to understand the doctrine? What did the Lord Jesus say about it? He will say things that are simple, clear, but they're authoritative. You say, oh, but I need to go to the epistles, to Thessalonians and to this. And Now, wait a minute. There's nothing new in the epistles that isn't in the seed plot of the Gospels. Nothing. There's no major doctrine in any epistles which are first not founded by the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll defy anybody to show me one because I'll show you where the Lord referred to it over and over and over. But you go there and they say to him, Lord, uh, you said that this temple's going to be overthrown, didn't you? Lord, would you mind telling us exactly all about it? When will these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What did the Lord say? Well, now, what you've got to do is you've got to look for this and then you've got to look for that. The Lord says, take heed that no man deceive you. You get it? It's there all the time in Scripture. Deception. Deception. There are no consequences. Deception. We can self-determine. Deception. We can exclude God from our knowledge. Deception. We know what's good for us. Deception. We can predict the times, the dates, the futures, and so on. And if you go through, and I won't go through, but just point out, he warns them, do not be deceived. There's going to be false Christs false prophets, great signs and wonders, so much so, so convincing will be the emissaries, the servants of Satan as angels of life that light, that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. I don't want to go too far on that, but it would look very much to me there's no excuse in Scripture for a true believer being deceived. Indeed, there's no possibility almost of it from those words. And I'll, we'll deal with that later on, why it is the believer is not deceived. I've already touched it. We've got a book. If we believe its authority and it's in simplicity, read its pages and hear God speak and put our trust and faith in that in the face of all the world's logic, in the face of all scientific logic, in the, in the face of your own personal mentality, experience or intellectual grasp, in the face of all, put God on the throne. You'll be preserved. If it was possible, you'd deceive even the very elect. But I want to show you something. 
deceived about a false Christ, a false prophet, the signs, the wonders. And also it says in verse 6, when you're seeing the wars and the rumours of wars, all right, when you're seeing nations rise against nation and famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places, and we all say, well, that's a sure sign that the Lord's coming. He says, don't you be deceived. The end is not yet. You know, there's one thing. If you ever think, if you ever dare to presume that you can work out the time when the Lord's going to come, I tell you, you're deceived. No man knows the day nor the hour. As straight as simple as that. You know, if you study history, in my calculation, he should have come long ago. <laughs> Things were so bad, but that's in the hands of God the Father, and in his wisdom, he's not revealed it. You know, I've actually got a man who wants me to keep him alive until next June, because the Lord's coming before next June. Well, I don't mind keeping him alive if I can. <laughs> you know, I won't go further. You get what I mean? No man knows the day nor the hour. Is that all? Let me just sum it up by saying this. I've only just scratched the surface. Go home for yourself and read. Get out your concordance. Look up every reference to deception and to deceiving and to deceivers, and it will leave you quite aghast. But I think I've given you some insight into the basis, the foundation of how this all began with the lie and how it continues with the ongoing belief in the lie and the ongoing activities of deception by Satan to perpetrate the lie. But can you see how powerful and how dangerous this all is? It's responsible for the ruin of man and the state of the world in which we live. It is Satan's modus operandi. He's expert at it. He's actually the father of it, the father of lies. And deceit, lies, mistruths, so well presented that they actually look like truth to such an extent that people actually believe it and act on it. It's lying honed to a very fine art. And Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and his ministers into ministers of righteousness. Get it? But let me just tell you one last encouraging thing. And let me make it really clear for every one of us, whether we think we know a lot or we think we know a little or we think we know nothing. And that's the, I, I uh, put yourself in the last one. <laughs> and some of you here are old enough to know the older you get, the less you know. <laughs> the less you know. Oh dear. Can you think of all the things you knew once? And now you think, oh, I wonder. <laughs> Oh, I wonder. Oh, you've got, you know everything when you've got half the information. No trouble at all. However, let's make it clear. There is never a suggestion in Scripture that we will be overwhelmed. The final perseverance of the saints is secured. You'll find it in the next picture when you see the standing with the Lamb. They're redeemed again on Mount Sion. You'll find it in the next chapter, standing on the sea of glass, and there's not a ripple on its surface, for God is in control, and his people are in his hand, and they sing the song of the redeemed, the song of Moses and of the Lamb, as every one redeemed and blood-bought sinner, whether it be from Israel of old, when they sang on the seashore, 
They'll sing afresh the song of redemption, the song of Moses, but it will now be the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And we'll join in together in grand and glorious chorus and sing like we've never sung before. And we'll crown him the Lord of all. Please, we said what you need is in this book. And I tell you now, it's all that we need is in the God who wrote this book. I love the way Jude ends. A God who is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The only wise God, our Saviour, to him be glory and majesty, power and dominion, now and forever. And you have to say, Amen. Be still, my soul, for God is on thy side. Veronica was playing that when we were sitting down and my wife said to me, we're talking about that hymn this morning. Listen, she's doing it. Be still, my soul. Child of his love, fear not the unknown morrow. Dread not the new demands life makes of thee, for he that saved you is able to keep you. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, we are again instructed and we are again uplifted to think that ultimately we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Part us with a divine blessing, an encouragement of heart, an eye that's fixed upon the Lord, and affections that are only for him, as we just wait the promise of his coming. And may it be, our Father, that the love of God, the fellowship, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit might be with us until he does come. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.